this is like death. This is the death panel. Okay. This it's is our recording studio. At slash my office. Hence why I want it to be like I wanted to make a scene really professional oh. for this podcast. We I'm looking at a a skull of some sort of primate. Yes. Humans More, are primates. Humans are absolutely primates. But that's not the one I'm looking at. That's very definitely a no, monkey skull. It's not a monkey. It's Again, also an ape. No. An ape. Not um a gorilla. Extent primate. I'm really not good at biology. Okay, so, um right. Um this is Matt, everybody. Hi everyone. Matt is an incredibly intelligent person. Oh. Yes, a very is interesting person. Is this a satirical person. podcast? <laughs> no. Uh, this is uh this is the deathy the deathy one. I love death. Yeah. So everyone, welcome to our podcast. <laughs> on on death. I'm here with your lovely podcast chieftain, mm, Sarah me. Rosen, who is the First and foremost, up and rising expert on all things to do with death. Why don't you tell us about what you do specifically, Sarah? Besides being the first and foremost up and coming expert on death. Yeah, because that is very, that's very much my opinion. Oh, so let's thank talk you, about Matt. hard facts. Hard facts. I'm a PhD student in forensic anthropology, mm-hmm. which means I study human skeletons. And that's my expertise. I have an, a master of science degree. Uh, and something called paleopathology, which means I study all of the things that can go horribly wrong with the human skeleton based on diseases and trauma and all of that good stuff, the things that would affect your bones. And you can use that in an archaeological context so you can see how people were living, what diseases they suffered from, what kind of work they were doing, what kind of life they were living. And then you can apply that to a forensic context, which is the legal stuff, trying to solve crimes, uh, to try to identify somebody. So if you know that so-and-so is missing, they had a broken arm when they were 20 years old, and you see a skeleton that has a fracture in that arm, you know that they could be that person. It certainly narrows it down. Absolutely, yeah. So, um, yeah, I deal with dead bodies. That is my thing. So, Matt, what does a cretin like you do? Oh, is that how we're going from now on in? Is, is, is this is, no, no, okay, okay. I will say that Matt and I met at a conference. Yes. Over the summer, and it was a lovely experience. Our session was fun. Our session was fun. And we the, were we the, were on the uh, we were on a panel together, which was a very cheerful panel called um, the Death Panel. <laughs> Which just says a lot about both of us and the kind of research that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, but Matt won for best presenter at the conference. Absolutely deserved. Oh, thank you. 100%. I was totally thrilled to hear everything that you were talking about. It was very surreal being like congratulated by someone <laughs> that is as intelligent as you. I was like, this is great. Stop. We we have to go beyond like complimenting each other. Eventually. But and this is okay for now. Your research, super interesting. And you got a distinction, which is like first class honors for all of the Americans who might be listening. Hey guys. For that research. Fourth of July. <laughs> is, that what, that. is that That's how you connect shout, to America? That's not a shout out to America. <laughs> Independence Day. Yeah. No. Oh. I mean, okay. I have a Guernsey passport, so I know truly <laughs> British enough. hegemony. Um, yeah, at the time I was just doing, I was doing my master's research. Um, and when I describe people like my case studies, I was like, oh, that's very niche, but 
the broadest thing that I look at isn't very niche at all. It's been done a lot. And I really look at functionalism and religion. So I look at the way religion acts in society and what people use religion to do. So it's I, I did my master's in religious studies and I'm now kind of, I've kind of like just segued into the social and cultural geography, um, looking at Judaism and sexuality in the UK. Because mm-hmm. um, I'm really interested in the role of religion in people's lives, especially when they encounter real crap stuff like <laughs> yeah. oppression and death. Or is death crap? Who knows? Let's begin. Oh dear, that's like a super <laughs> deep question to start off a podcast with. Like, that is, I don't really want to do that question. No, let's save that for like the last episode we ever do. Tune in next week. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, pessimistic. I don't know. I think I think we got a shot. What do you mean? I'm making make it a, a go of this podcast. I think so. Yeah. There's a lot of death to talk about. It's something we all do. Death. And I love the fact that you come at death from the sociocultural perspective. Mm-hmm. And I come at death from the biological perspective. But there's still a lot of mixing of back and forth. That means that Sarah's like the really scientific, <laughs> sane one. And I'm here with like my portions. I haven't even said what this study was. It's basically the very niche oh, topic right. that I presented yes. was um, I looked at um, I looked at a specific religious community in the UK called Zoroastrians. And I looked at their very specific funerary practices and so I studied... Did you, make, did you make very specific conclusions? Um, there's some shade being thrown <laughs> in this recording studio, everyone, because we'll come into that later on in the episode, but there are some cultural inaccuracies that I broadcast to a room full of academics that have been touched upon by the high priest of the Zoroastrians. But anyway, mm. I specifically looked at the method of electrifying, electrocuting dead bodies to turn them into dust. That's so cool. <laughs> I, that's so weird. So, because I do archaeology and, mm. and, and forensic anthropology, burning of bones is actually, you need to know all about that if you're looking at sure. human skeletal remains. And yeah. when you burn bones, you actually call them cremains. So that's the term we use. Yeah, that's the technical really? term. Yeah, so cremated oh. remains gets abbreviated, essentially, to cremains. I like that. Yeah, and um, there are a couple of different things you should you should know. Um Fun facts, if you will. <laughs> sure, let's add this into like a glossary of fun facts. Fun facts about death today, about cremains. Bones have actually a, a lot of a, a huge amount of trouble burning down all the way. So when mm-hmm. people get cremated and ashes are returned to families, the ashes aren't necessarily just from the bones being burned oh. because you still get big chunks of, of bone that, that won't burn down. So essentially, all of stuff that, that's sort of in the... Urn. Right, is the remains that have burned down as much as possible that have then been stuck in a grinder. Oh. Uh, and then ground to a fine powder yeah. to better suit the um, <clears throat> the aesthetic, if you will, of contemporary taste. Right? I think the first time I got my hands on that urn, and it was like a big salt shaker. <laughs> is that like a thing? Is this like a normal done thing? I've never seen an urn that was shaped like a salt shaker. It but... wasn't shaped like a salt shaker, <laughs> but, the, but, the, but the method of disembarkation, let's say. Oh, was, I see, so if yeah, you're going to scatter it. You could salt shake it out, <laughs> like jerk seasoning. I don't know, it just, this is really more. Why that, why? This was a close family member as well. Sorry, <laughs> Sorry, Gran. <laughs> Have I told you that my cousin's an undertaker? No. 
Why isn't he here or she here? She. 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 Check yourself. So I I did check myself. <laughs> you did. Why isn't she here? She's probably working. Uh, alright. Hey, you don't know the... It's, the, it's the, the witching st- hour for the Undertakers. <laughs> She's got some great stories, like falling in a grave and breaking a hip. What? How old is your cousin? Like... 80? <laughs> no, she's quite happy. She's 25. Sorry, Laura, don't fact check me. Well, so a lot of people ask me, I say a lot, like two people have asked me this, <laughs> but like how far do you actually have to fall before you die? Like, How far is it? About 50 feet. So if you think like, if there's an average between uh, 10 feet per story, mm-hmm. you need to jump from at least five feet. Five feet, five stories. That's not comforting at all no did disclaimer we are not making fun of these people that died no we are trying to talk about a very important thing and and stuff that we do professionally and that we care about deeply Mm -hmm. but we're also human and we also have lives so this is our safe space (laughs) and we're inviting you straight into it (laughs) to intellectually offload yeah. That's a lovely phrase. Intellectually offload upon the yeah. unsuspecting public. Oh, and I've completely forgotten to tell you the other fun fact about cremains. I'm so sorry, listeners. It's okay. <laughs> I, I was talking about salt shakers. Right, right. I haven't had me dinner yet, so I'm like a bit hungry. So I'm oh, just no. like... Right, so the other fun fact about cremated human bones is that bones change colour depending on the heat at which they're burned. Okay. So most people assume that bones are white, but they're really not. They're the sort of yellowish... Really? Creamy colour. Yeah, oh. because they're living tissue and it, it does sort of have a more ivory colour. Okay. Now, if you heat them at a certain temperature, they, they start to turn white. So they do turn that pure white, but only when they've been cremated. And then they turn blue. I beg your pardon? You heard me. Yes, human bones remains when bones turn blue when you heat them at a hot enough temperature. And when I was doing an internship at the Museum of Natural History in New York City, I was doing an, uh, an intern in the archaeology department, and they had a sorting through spoil from an archaeological mm. site. And I came across a, just a beautiful specimen of like this iridescent blue bone fragment. And that's just from being superheated. Mm. See? I told you I had cool facts. That is cool. Fun Also, facts. like, disclaimer listener, when we talk about beautiful things, it's likely that they're not <laughs> I mean, that one is pretty much quite pretty, but... I will say it's, it, it was beautiful. Okay. Um, so this is, like, real beautiful. Our, like, macabre beauty. I mean, it's macabre in the sense that, like, it used to be a person, yeah. and then you should treat the fragment as though it is a person, although there is a lot of conversation about... At what point do you ascribe identity self, to a, right? a, a yeah. you know, that's a, actually a big part of my thesis for my doctoral dissertation, especially if you have uh, a mass murder context or um, a terrorist act. Mm. So some of the places I look at are like the World Trade Center. You have tons of what we call commingled bones. So bones that are mixed together, diff- bones of different people that are mixed together, uh-huh. highly fragmented. And so for the World Trade Center, you know, for each bone fragment, they, they give it a, an identity number. Okay. And they will do DNA testing on every single sample that they can. Mm-hmm. So for them, each fragment that they find is a person. Well, I think it's interesting as well because, you know, this idea that humans are no more than biological animals. You know, this re- I mean, it like really rose in like with Charles Darwin. And I'm not going to explain what his theory of evolution is because I don't know. 
But <laughs> okay, uh, this, next this podcast we're gonna go over. Next podcast, I will learn because the reason why I have written. the reason why you don't know going back to the beginning of our little interview or whatever. <laughs> um, the reason why you don't know what that skull is is because you don't know about human evolution. Well, I know we came from like. Careful now. <laughs> what do you know we came from? Okay, I don't know where we came from. I think it's very... I don't know. I just know that... Let's see. We'll, have a, we'll have a chat next time. We'll, okay. We'll Will you like give that. me a nice chat about why yes. I'm wrong with my size? Absolutely. But yeah, at, the end of, at the end of this podcast, I'll tell you which skull that is. Oh, how exciting. Ooh. So yeah, I mean, in the 19th century, there was this big rise in biological determinism, which is this idea, right, that we're nothing more than bones, blood, and guts and stuff. And then we kind of like have that being like, no, we are like creative and all this, blah, 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 blah. This is like a really quick tour of sociology of like 150 years. So like everyone just take that as with a huge mountain of salt. Um, <laughs> but not from inter- a salt shaker shaped not, urn. Not from a salt shaker shaped urn because that will, you will be eating grandma. So <laughs> please don't do that. But like, it's really interesting because as much as we sometimes wish we weren't just biological beings... Finding remains of perished loved ones is really important. But maybe that's because you can't comprehend such a vast energy as a human being has disappeared. This is kind of getting into my artsy territory, so like science take me away. It's actually also very much what I'm doing with my thesis, Mm. because I do interdisciplinary stuff as well. I do some social stuff. And there's um, a lot of evidence about how important it is for families of the disappeared, mm-hmm. say forcibly disappeared in a civil war, genocide context. It's important for family members to get their, their loved ones back. And that's why forensic anthropological initiatives after genocide or just mm-hmm. mass, mass casualty scenarios is so important. They say that, I say they, me included, they with a capital T, we say that forensic anthropology isn't done in the name of the dead done in the name of the living mm. like to us we have to work under the assumption that the dead don't necessarily care whether what happens to them uh, after they are dead I'm not too bothered right now let alone I'm dead <laughs> sorry <laughs> this, I swear this isn't like a counselling podcast but... <laughs> yes we, you should go talk about that with somebody okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but of course it's done in the, the name of the people who are still alive who were either victims also of that particular conflict or violence, or who have family members who disappeared during that time, because it tends to be this process of closure. Well, I think then, kind of going from that, like, what both of our, like, academic approaches deal with, you do it in a lot more scientific and, I think, is empirical the right word, maybe? I mean, I still do empirical study, but I feel like yours is a lot more biological, bioforensic, anthropological, because for me, I think the focus is, even though death's something that's so omnipresent, that's around us all the time, and it's it should be a natural part of life, and we like to tell ourselves that death is part of the circle of life, right? But it's not, right? We can't, you know, the human mind can't really comprehend non-consciousness. We can't do it. We can't comprehend our own annihilation. So I think whereas you might look at that in terms of forensics and justice for people, I think my focus is more shifted to like a structural approach to how cultures then grapple with such a with such an issue, whether this be by electrifying their dead or 
you know, by having a... What's, what does it say in Judaism? How many days do you have to fast? Is it two? Um, I don't know. Dies? I don't think... For Shiva? I, I don't think there is fasting. Oh, Shiva, that'll be seven days then, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, like Shiva. Yeah. yeah. I know you're not meant to do things around the body. Because the soul's not meant to have left. So the the body, so far as I know, with Judaism, mm. and I am Jewish for all of our listeners who did not catch Disclaimer. that yeah. from the name Sarah Rosen. <laughs> it is like <laughs> the most Jewish name to ever exist. The body has to be washed and then kept company mm. for a certain oh. amount of days. That's not usually done by the family. It's usually done by volunteers. They volunteer for certain slots kind sure. of deal and not necessarily for people they know but for anybody in the community so then shiva which is the morning process you're not supposed to sit on furniture that's above a certain height right. so you're supposed to sit on the floor you're supposed to not wash your clothes you're even supposed to i say they i think the technical term is render your clothes i was like you're supposed you're, you're supposed to um to tear your clothing Ooh. um traditionally Actually, in Judaism, white tends to be more of a mourner's color than black does. Same Baha'ism. I'm a Baha'i, also another disclaimer. Shaheen, <laughs> that's the giveaway. Matthew Shaheen Richardson. Okay, that's the ethnicity out of the way. So, because I mean, the only like funky, I say the only, but like the funky burial practice we have is that you don't transport the body more mm. than an hour from where it's died. So if you died on holiday... Funky, you're just bamboozled. <laughs> like, your spirit is... Still... But what if... Oh, but an you hour by car? Like, yeah, you oh, can, yeah. okay. That's how you can get around it. But I got, like, last year... This is a bit of a weird flex, but okay. But last year I got a, I got a job <laughs> offer at the Global Leadership University of Mongolia. Yes. And I, this is before I met you. I want a gig like that. I don't know how high they up in the rankings, but they were like, you can be an English tutor and we'll pay for you, mm. like, board rent. And I was like, and the thing was, like, if I go out to Mongolia, would I be able to get a Baha'i funeral? Because that is more than enough. It's like two days to get there. Mm. Would you want a Baha'i funeral? Would they make an exception? I don't think I have a choice. I think in my wallet I've got a card saying my body has to be buried in a Baha'i method. Huh. So, is that because you actively sought out a death card? No, I'm, 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 <laughs> or do so, they just give it to you when you sign up for membership give to it a to convocation? You you, it's not, it's not a death card, but it's because, um, <laughs> because Baha'ism like is quite persecuted, let's say, across the world. Mm. I think it's for things like identity and security reasons. You have a card being like, yes, this person's a member. Okay. I can't remember what the secret police are called in Iran, but. Baha'ism comes from Iran, and the secret police crack down on it quite a lot. I think all these examples about why we do some pretty eccentric things to kind of get over this <laughs> trauma of death. And we're going to uh, talk about some babe it, called Mary Douglas at one point in this oh, oh, yes, Mary Douglas. She is an anthropologist. She is like, oh, she talks about death. Oh. She talks about semen. <laughs> and, well, she talks hey, a lot about that. This like, is not Mary a family-friendly podcast, incidentally. This is I don't know if you've like figured that out by now, but we're just like so. And we may have had a bottle of wine. That's fine too. You got it. You sometimes you got. I don't because I'm behind. That's not allowed. I mean, it's not allowed. I know, but you yeah. yeah. Doing research, you know, it can feel like an insurmountable thing to do a dissertation or or a doctoral thesis. But I saw somebody the other day 
had done like literally my PhD in America oh, two years ago. No. And it like it genuinely made me gag. Yeah. But yeah, I mean like we probably sound re I mean I probably sound very like callous <laughs> just for me, like talking about it and making it yeah. a point that we can jokingly talk about. Or well, like hardly talk about. Yeah. And and it's very good. You and I both we both study death. And you so got to, yeah. I know, and like for me it comes from a lot of unresolved trauma. Um mm. being Jewish and being very clearly other. You know, yeah. I grew up knowing what the Holocaust was. I grew up with those images mm-hmm. of death camps and genocide. And I knew very deeply what it meant to be somebody who is hated and what it means to be of the people who survived something like that. Yeah. And when I was very young, I remember you know, the genocide in Sudan um, yeah. the, or the, the sort of second outbreak of the internal conflict in Sudan. And trying desperately through all of the sort of social activist stuff that was available to me, available to me at the time, went to big protests. There were 100,000 people at a protest I went to wow. in New York City, trying to get the UN to step in the Sudan conflict. And it didn't do anything. It didn't make a difference. For me, it's like, well, this is not working. What can I do yeah. as a person, utilizing my strengths, to do to not only resolve my own trauma as, you know, that inherited trauma. And there's a lot of evidence that suggests trauma like that is biologically passed on to people. And co- well, of course, culture and biology yeah. could, in fact, be the same thing. So Controversial. Controversial. Contra. Do not is that what you said? Me. No corrections corners here. Please. No, yeah, please, like, this is so <laughs> As we've said, wine has been consumed, so <laughs> this is not a viva. Don't at me. <laughs> Don't at me. Yes. I um, think we have... Oh, no, carry on. I felt I had no power to prevent things like this from happening, but I did have the power to resolve my own trauma or help mm-hmm. to and help resolve other people's trauma after the fact. That's why I chose to go into this kind of field. Yes. It was, it doesn't stop me though being a happy person. I didn't choose to study death because I'm an unhappy person. Um, although there mm-hmm. are struggles that go along with it. I'm hoping to do a postdoctoral project about how anthropologists can or can't empathize with people who are skeletonized, people who are dead mm. and in skeletons, and the effect on, on their well-being and their efficiency as forensic anthropologists. So that's hopefully my next step. I think a lot of anthropologists in general, like, for an essay, I, I studied um, the religiosity of homeless people. And you know when people end up telling you stories about abuse and neglect and sexual assault and these kinds of things, really, really heavy stuff, you're listening to that, not only just, you know, like, we're sat here listening, or a listener could be at home on their iPod listening, but, but you have an audio recording that you've then got to make into words, and if you've not done that before, listener, something like an hour of audio is five hours of transcribing. It's really, really long. So when you have somebody saying, you know, telling you a story about how they were abused as a kid, and that is physically replaying in your head again and again and again and again and again... It does have, like, a hypnotising effect on you. So I think that would be a really interesting avenue to take them in. But you're welcome. I will cite you. I'll cite you. I'll cite you. I think, like, the more... I I don't know. Can you talk about your work in New York? I will wait until I finish my thesis, I think. Okay. Um, Purely because of the agreements we have 
Sure. I think the, Transcribing is a bitch, but so is ethics as well. Ethics is a huge thing. Essentially... And it should be. The the forensic people yeah. just want to make sure that I'm representing what they've told me sure, correctly. okay. So that's no problem. Um, but when that is done, I will d- gladly talk about that. <laughs> I can talk a little bit about Guatemala, which is where Go I on, spent well, a yeah. few months. Well, why don't you do Guatemala today? Okay. And... <laughs> And I'll talk a little bit about the Zoroastrians. Ooh, all right. Okay, go. Exciting. You go first. Oh, yeah, I'll go first. I'll go first, fine. So give me the spiel and then I'll the ask questions. Spiel, ooh, love that word. Good okay. Yiddish word. Good Jewish word. Is it well a Yiddish done. word? Yeah, spiel. Anything that starts with the sh sound. Anyway. Mazel tov. <laughs> Moving swiftly Let's on. Let's go on. Guatemala. Right, so I spent five months doing ethnographic field work in Guatemala. I won't go too much into detail about the actual research I was doing, so okay. the nitty-gritty bit of it, but I can definitely talk about the civil war in Guatemala, yes. the stuff that emerged after it, and some of the dynamics that are at work in Which Guatemala Which I think as well, being in the UK, I didn't even know there was a civil war in Guatemala. Most people don't, and that was a very common thing that I observed, just talking okay. to people casually when I was living there. A lot of the time I would live in hostels because that was a very inexpensive way to live. I did get in my own apartment, um, but there was a lot of time spent just in in hostels. And part of that is communicating with the people around you Mm -hmm. in very casual ways. And there are lots of tourists and a lot of people who work at these hostels are also backpackers that are paying their way through their travels. Sure. Very few of them are actually local. But what's nice about the local people was that because I was there for much longer than most backpackers, you know, I, I created friendships with them and we were able to have these conversations. I should say my Spanish is really no bueno. <laughs> like, it is pathetic. Yeah. Um, so my research really was limited by the people I could speak to because they had to speak English, <laughs> you know. I could have had a translator, but it seemed just too complicated for the kind of work I was doing. Yeah. When you go to these hostels and you get to know the people who work there, the story of who you are and what you research, what you're doing there becomes kind of common knowledge. And I had a couple of people approach me and they were very open about sharing their uh, opinions about the Civil War and how they feel as though there was never any reconciliation or never any effective reconciliation that the people who were responsible for much of the violence didn't get punished. And I'll go into the specifics of the actual sure. genocide in a second. Then, of course, all of the tourists, especially the tourists who worked there, were like, there was a genocide? That was a no. very... No! And they were living there, And they were living there, yes. So it's really just stunning. They the... could be asked to learn about, like, the contemporary history. And it... they Because it sounds people are quite open about it. They... Like. Yeah. Well, they... well, they're open if you ask the right questions. They're not going to just right. supply you. Sure. You know, because who are you to them? Like... It's very easy, I think, for Western, especially white Western people, to go to a foreign country where there's been this horrible violence, even if they don't know about it, and and not be able to ask the right questions and not and just assume somehow that they're going to get the full experience and the full perspectives of the people who live there. But like, why would those local people ever talk to you about those things mm. as a tourist, as somebody who doesn't really get deeply involved? So you, you can't assume that people are going... That. Yeah, and actually there's a great book about um, indigenous Maya in Guatemala called Finger in the Wound. Uh-huh. Um, if anybody is interested in sort of the anthropology of, of you know, uh, the genocide in Guatemala and the anthropological stuff that comes after it, great book. 
We'll have like a further reading section. Yeah, further reading. <laughs> Works cited section. I'm like, you'll have like homework to do by next session <laughs> as the listener. Yes. That's your commitment to this. Yeah. So, and that was one of the assumptions, assumptions I made a little bit going into it, but not so much in the ethnographic stuff. So that's when you talk to people, mm-hmm. try to find out about their culture, the way they live, that kind of thing. But it was more from the forensic aspect where I thought I would be given access to forensic excavations. It wasn't an unreasonable assumption, but it definitely was colored by this power dynamic that I was coming from a prestigious British university. Yes. I was white, privileged, and had made some level of assumption that I could do the research I wanted to do, when in reality, it wasn't to be. Okay. So that's how my thesis grew, was examining this dynamic of who gets access and who doesn't. But more than just researchers, anybody. How, how does anybody get access to forensic services? Anywhere. Yeah. Because there's always going to be a disparity. So where, do that, where does that disparity fall? So that's the idea behind my thesis. So it's both, okay, it's sure. both social and forensic. So in, in Guatemala, for a very long time, we have, of course, Guatemala was colonized uh, along with the rest of what we know as Latin America. Um, although, to be fair, French-speaking sections of Canada are technically Latin American, too. Really? Yes, because they speak French. So that's a Latin, oh. that's a Romance language, a Latin-based language. What? So, so, yeah. So, um, well, anyway, uh, Guatemala was colonized by the Spanish. Okay. <laughs> it's in Central America, right? It's in Central America. Central America. Yes, it's um, next to Belize, which was once British Honduras. So that was yes. um, colonized by the British. And there was, it's next also next to Honduras and El Salvador and Mexico. So that's sort of the geography. So in that very slim part of Central America. It's like right, it's like above it. Okay, kind of going okay, into sure. So it's below Mexico and going into that slim Got bit. It. There was a lot of really questionable legislative stuff going on in terms of controlling indigenous Native Americans so in the area. So what time Well, this is just early colonial Oh, colonial stuff. Years. Yeah. So <laughs> there was a dictator okay. called Ubico for a very long time, up until about 1944. And there was a popular uprising which overthrew him as a dictator. And they had their first democratically elected government. And of course, this was just after the Second World War, right really at the beginning of the Red Scare. And yeah, I do that sign. Let me guess. Yes. So absolutely America gets involved. Essentially they they elect a left leaning government that included several communists. So you know like when they did um the election recently for the British government yeah. and the Tories lost a lot of seats so they but they didn't the DUP. right so yeah. exactly so they they got their majority by like going with extremist groups a little bit you know we know what I'm talking about yeah yeah, yeah. so the DUP are just yeah like themselves exactly so essentially there's a generally left-leaning government they were working with these communists in the government because mm-hmm. that was a good way to get a lot of their majority. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they weren't communists. They had a they had some communists working with them. They were they were happy to work with those communists. And they did this massive overhaul of agrarian law. So that's just farming yeah. farming law where they seized a lot of privately owned land and land that had been bought up in a neo colonist really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um you won't have heard of this company, United Fruit Company, but you will have heard of them by their co- contemporary name, which is called Chiquita Banana. 
You've never heard of Chiquita Banana? Everyone's heard of Chiquita Banana. Same, what do they do? They sell, they sell bananas. <laughs> do they? Yeah, I they probably have. I just probably they're haven't a banana, looked at the label. They're a banana company. Yeah, I probably just and, haven't looked at the label. Right, so yeah. there's a reason why they rebranded. And I Got mean, right. uh, don't don't fact check me there. I'm sure there was more than one reason. Hugo Boston. But I don't even know what Hugo Boss did. Oh, oh boy. Oh, they made a lot of uniforms for certain German political parties. Oh, everyone was related to the Nazis. <laughs> I'm sick of this crap. Okay, anyway, so anyway, the new government and the, the right. taking land back from Right, which of course yeah. pissed off all of these major companies because they just took land from them and gave it mm. back to... The people. Yeah, um, which are very communist. I'm kind right. of on the side of the new Guatemalan Yeah, no, no, that's, that okay. seems okay. Like, after years yeah. of colonization, I think, you know, back, yeah, screw yeah. you. Um, but of course, it was very easy to lobby the United States government into thinking Guatemala had gone red. And that right. would be a danger to them in that particular area of Central America. So the CIA have now declassified their mm-hmm. files about it. So you can actually read all of those decisions. But yes, they set up a military coup d'etat to overthrow, overthrow this government and install a, a military government. And that was um, in 1954. So it was about 10 years in between when the first democratically mm-hmm. elected government came to power and when they were then overthrown. Isn't this just after Chile as well? Was I, Chile 1953? Probably got that really wrong. Don't fact check us, don't, yeah. please. Um, <laughs> so most people consider the start of Guatemala's civil war to be in 1954. With that coup d'etat. Exactly. Okay. So then there was a band of guerrilla fighters, leftist fighters, that came to came head-to-head with the military presence as a lot of indigenous peoples were being benefited by this leftist government a lot of them fell along those particular lines sure and over the course of the next few decades would be very much involved in protest movements and guerrilla movements and would harbor people in the forest and and that kind of thing and in the government decided to implement something called a scorched earth policy which which is important to talk about nowadays because Donald Trump has suggested doing exactly the same thing for the families of ISIS, which is, of course, a war crime, right? So the idea is it also doesn't work. you have an enemy, so you have an enemy, they're hiding, you can't access them, but you can't access their families, so why don't just kill all their families and give them no place to hide? And that's what scorched earth policy is. And that's what happened in Guatemala. And the most violent time was about, it was in the 1980s. And that's when the vast majority of murders happened. And they estimate, a conservative estimate of the people killed because of this is 150,000 indigenous people. And they were labeled an internal enemy and they had these death squads, these sort of paramilitary death squads that would just go and annihilate village and torture people for information and then, and then kill them. Just and, wanting their land back from, you know, people that stole it from them. Yeah, Absolutely. Okay, so we have 150,000 people killed right. in this war. And then a, a further 50,000 people forcibly disappeared. So that means we don't really know what happened to them. They could have been murdered. They may have been forced into, as refugees into other countries. But the likelihood, in reality, it was pro- up to 200,000 people were killed. So, okay. Right. And, and so what's the population of Guatemala? Not all that much. At the time, it, it probably less than what it is now. I'm not sure what the, the numbers are, but it's um, a huge proportion. So we're we talking like 5 million people in Guatemala? 
I know. I, if you if you force me to giving you a number, the number is gonna be wrong. Okay, I'm not gonna. Okay, so but just talking about. I mean, that is a crazy amount of people. Two hundred thousand. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I was over the course of like four years in the eighties. So okay. even though the civil war was that long, the majority of the violence only happened in the eighties and like over the course right. of four or five years. So that's a huge amount of people to, to kill to in that, in that yeah. amount of time. They were able to, um, come up with a ceasefire agreement in 1996. The UN brokered this ceasefire agreement and there was a big investigation and where, of course, they did dis- they decided that a genocide had happened, and here are all of these ways we're going to suggest for you to move forward. And that was done by the Commission for Historical Clarification. Okay. Which I think is, like, the most passive-aggressive. Interesting <laughs> name, yeah. Interesting choice of name. It was, in, um, that's, like, the, the translation. Okay, right, okay. Um, because the original was in Spanish, but, I mean, it's, it's pretty much yeah, the, right. the same. But they were actually in no position to bring charges. So all of the charges that were to be brought against perpetrators would have had to have happened internally right. by the Guatemalan government. Only a few have been brought um, in the years that have come after. There was one infamous one, um, prosecution of this guy called Mont, M-O-N-T-T. He was convicted, but the conviction was overturned a few years ago. Why? Who the hell even knows? Right, okay. And then he was... So people don't have justice. He's he would, people that have yeah, lost their lives. He, right. he was actually supposed to be retried. While I, while I was in Guatemala, actually, the trial mm. started again. And then he died during the trial. Not in the courtroom, so far as I'm aware. <laughs> but, um, and then they just dropped everything because, oh, he's dead. Well, it's not no use moving forward. But it's like, well, what about all those people who deserve to have justice. legally re- like, yeah. recognized that this they person... Were yeah. And um, one of the things that this Commission for Historical Clarification said was a good way to start the reconciliation process is to create facilities that will help identify victims' skeletal remains. So that's where the forensic anthropological stuff comes in. Mm. And there were a couple, and there are a couple of forensic organizations that do that kind of work in Guatemala. So they excavate these mass graves that have the victims of the Civil War in them, and they do... Um, big DNA testing nowadays. They have a certified DNA lab and they do other kinds of forensic analysis on the skeleton to try to match up missing persons reports and this mm. sort of anecdotal testimony from relatives with the skeletons that they're actually seeing in the grave. Okay. And that comes up actually with a, a huge amount of theoretical problems that forensic anthropologists have to face, just especially when it comes to genocide. Right. So one of the big ones is that usually there are a couple of big things, but generally speaking, forensic anthropological successfulness falls along socioeconomic lines. People who have access to medicine and doctors will have medical records that forensic anthropologists can look at and they can compare that data to. So people, especially dental records. So if you have dental records and medical records, a forensic anthropologist is significantly more likely to be able to identify your body. Of course, indigenous Maya, the reason why they were rebelling was because they were entrenched in this sort of systematic poverty. They didn't have access to these services and they were targeted because of it. So it's one of these... It's preying on the kind of like power structures that make racism possible, essentially. Absolutely. And so that means forensic anthropologists have that much harder of a a time identifying these genocide Mm. victims. That's just one aspect of it. 
Another okay. aspect when it comes to, to genocide, because a lot of genocide has to do with ethnicity and yes. origin. Yeah. A lot of the time people are targeted because they are either from a particular community that is genetically different and is sort of... There's they a, call it heteroreferential racism. So... This fear of biological difference and ethnic difference yeah. will make humans, in certain cases, very wary. And it's horrible. Yeah. It's like a disease. Absolutely. And some people, I think, have, have evidence that it's like almost like a mental illness. Mm. This might be a really macabre mm. question, I'm sorry to interrupt you. But I don't know if it like, would impact. Also because I'm interested to see you know, what a cultural response to this would be. But also it might impact the ease of identification. But how were people killed and disposed of? I know that's a very macabre question. Yeah, no, but, I mean, but I people are going to want to know. Talk about. Because I know that obviously in the Holocaust you have... You know, gas chambers and burning, so there's not really any forensic evidence. And There's also a lot of cultural stuff preventing people from doing forensic analysis of death camps. In general, Jewish people don't necessarily want to be dug up again. Yes. And I found exactly the same... I don't know if we know this, actually. I worked in Cambodia for a little bit. Oh, we should talk about that. We should. Maybe I'll do that today, because it's it's quite related. yeah. I don't know, maybe yeah. we should stick to it. Maybe we can just cut out the Zoroastrian bit. And, like, <laughs> edit this in. Maybe we'll see, we'll see. Okay. Um, and yeah, they don't exhume the bodies. So the bodies yeah. only get buried when they wash up in the rain. Well, I have a couple. I do have some observations to talk about Cambodia Ooh. if you do talk about it. But um, to answer your question yes. and to finish answering the other question. Apologies. That's okay. Yeah. So if people are targeted because they're from a certain ethnic group, yes. if they are from a certain genetic heritage... Their skeletons are probably going to look a hell of a lot alike. If, course, yeah. if they are targeted because they look a certain way, that similarity re- is reflected in the bones as well. If they're all from a, same, a similar genetic, genetic heritage as well, there are lots of different theoretical problems when it comes to doing forensic analysis of genocide victims, just, just from the offset. Most of people say, like, you can, if you take off someone's skin... Everyone's <laughs> the same on the inside. It's, like, it's not true. Not, it is you know? not true. Like, when people... With it, you know... When yes. they have like the skeletons actually show us like black, white, gay. Yeah, and like the it's same like, x-ray. It's like, oh. no, no, not even, no. Although I will say, we should talk about another time in yeah. another podcast. But ancestry definitely, like so when we talk about ancestry or race when you're doing skeletal analysis, oh. it's not helpful, it doesn't exist. If someone is using it, I'm then make a note of this question, thing. question the heck out of whatever it is they're saying. Interesting. Because it's... Yeah. There's so much evidence. We'll talk about it another time. But yeah. that's, that's another theoretical issue in, in okay. forensics, you know? Okay. So we talk about it. You know, it's a science, sure, but it has all of these theoretical shortcomings that people don't want to talk mm-hmm. about because by the time a forensic anthropologist then gets on the stand in a courtroom, you're not going to believe half the things they say. Like, but what about this? And what about that theoretical problem? And that theoretical problem? So none of, nobody really talks about yeah. it because they have to have this, this sense that forensic anthropologists know what they're talking about. Yeah. Right. So you asked how people were killed. And um, how they were disposed, disposed of. of. That's a really harsh term I'm using disposed of, but I'm trying to... Well, to be to be fair, I mean, in a, in a genocide context... Yeah. Unfortunately... That's, you know, as, 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 as reduced as it can be. So there are a lot of different reports. Like I said, a lot of people were tortured first mm-hmm. and were killed very slowly um, to get information out of them or to frighten Others. the political enemies, the other people. I killed them as well. Yeah, so there are people, you know, it just the, runs the gamut. 
there's a particular there's particular evidence of horrific violence against women and children because those were like the wives and daughters and, and of the of the guerrilla fighters. So yes. So it's preying on it's preying on the and, innocent. And and to go back into that theoretical thing again, the problems in an archaeological context, in a forensic context, males tend to be overrepresented in mass graves or any kind of excavation of burials. Mm. And as do children. For children, it's a pretty simple thing. Their bones are smaller. They're easier to get lost. It's, they tend to have poor preservation. Okay. So, like, you may have um, more children represented, but you will find fewer because right, okay. of just the nature of decomposition, the nature of something called um, taphonomy, which is what happens to the skeleton after it's been buried. So the, the bones will move because the earth is not a stagnant thing. Yeah, of course, it's yeah. not a cemented thing. So things move. And so children get underrepresented. Females get underrepresented. And of course, even defining biological sex in the skeleton is not nearly as straightforward as you think it would be. It's very much on a spectrum. So mm-hmm. also people who are like, oh, well, you can tell the biological sex of a skeleton. Therefore, biological sex is binary and... Screw everybody in between, or people are you about to drop that... some truth tea? I'm about to drop some. Um, I don't even think that's a phrase, but it was I don't know. It is now. Yeah, truth it's the first tea. one that came to mind. Everything's a spectrum, okay. including biological sex. People are born intersex all the time, and they are normal human beings, and that is fine. People are born intersex; you'll never know. People are born with chromosomes that are not just XY or XX all the time, and you'll never know, and they're fine. Sometimes they're not fine, but it's very rare. Certain combinations of chromosomes don't, yeah, will, will kill cause you. Cause some issues. Yeah, even if you consider sex and gender to be more connected than just two different sides of a coin or whatever, there's still everything in between. It's not. A, yeah. It's not a dichotomy, and we see that in the skeleton very clearly. We we never say that something is definitely male or definitely female unless mm-hmm. we're doing a DNA test. Okay. And we very rarely do that because it's expensive and a visual analysis is usually just as useful. It depends. If you have like a lot of remains to work through, it's just not practical. So if you do a visual assessment, you're usually going to get a good enough answer to give you um, what you need to know. But we never say definitely male, definitely female. We'll say very male, say very female Mm -hmm. based on certain architectural things. But we also have somewhat male, somewhat female and then in the middle, uh, an indeterminate. Mm-hmm. And that's totally normal and fine. You know, so this, and also the pelvis might be very masculine and the skull might be very feminine. It's a, it's a spectrum. And that's yeah. okay. So get your sort of creepy, phobic hands off my forensic anthropology. Yes, queen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So. Right. What are you even saying? Oh, right, right, right. So in these contexts, yes. you can have overrepresentation of women and children, but you still might not be able to identify or find as many women and children in these graves. So it's another like socioeconomic disparity of, in the practice of forensic anthropology. It's really interesting, I think. And like, you know, the angle I want to spin this as is like, yes. what's the cultural marker you think this is like left on? Mm. One, the cultural marker, and I'm talking kind of like a bigger, so, you know, the structure of the society. And then the social marker in inter- interrelationships between people. Wow, you're really hitting me with those literature review questions. But I'm this I'm is a so, viva. I'm so Are ready. You ready. I'm so ready. So it's been very clear from all of the so- so, uh, social cultural 
ethnography and research that's come out of Guatemala that yeah. most people have this opinion that people haven't actually paid for the, the crimes and there hasn't been effective reconciliation. Those wounds are still very much open. Uh, for a lot of people, the reality is the violence never stopped. The okay. ceasefire was ineffectual in and of itself. There's a lot of evidence that suggests what was once overt violence became clandestine violence. So the violence shift from death squads going into villages and murdering people or kidnapping people to have you know vandalizing your property or kidnapping you at right, night okay. or someone wakes up and they don't know where you've gone. And so this sort of under the cover of darkness violence which is terrifying yeah it's just as terrifying you know having like graffiti painted on your house because you're a political dissenter or mm. people perceive you to be can be just as traumatizing you know as anything else in in the internal conflict and in reality there's some demographics in guatemala that are facing nearly the same rate of violence now particularly women so women are being killed at nearly the same rate today as they were at the height of the civil war. Oh my goodness. So you talk about reconciliation, you talk about the ceasefire. It's, it's hard to know to what people arenas. absolutely. So there's been a lot of observations that what the death squads, because none of those, none of those people were ever actually tried or convicted, there's this sense of judicial or um, just criminal impunity. Mm. There's no justice to be had there. And those paramilitaries have just morphed into gangs. Right, and that okay. gang violence has, is very clearly observed. And has Guatemala City is one of the most dangerous cities in the world. And did you have to take steps to protect your own personal safety when you were there? Uh, yes. So the university asked that I not live in Guatemala City, that I live in a different city with a lower crime rate. And if I needed to go into Guatemala City to commute, to right. avoid certain you know neighborhoods, neighborhoods, certain modes of transport, and just take precaution so with that in mind there's there's another uh, another author Bellino I've forgotten the the article that she wrote I think it was 2000 2015 she did like a educational project doing like transitional justice through education and she observed that contemporary violence overshadows the past violence and renders it insignificant in the face of contemporary suffering in a sense what's the point of worrying about stuff from the civil war when mm. the conditions are, are so bad yeah. and there's still the, the entrenched poverty. And I, but I want to say, I mean, Guatemala is a beautiful country. Yeah. It's a wonderful country to visit. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily recommend spending a huge amount of time in Guatemala a city walking around by yourself. That's not necessarily a good idea. But where I was living in Antigua, it's a beautiful city and it's absolutely worth your time. I mean, of course, take care of yourself. Be aware. Like lots of people safely backpack through and have a great time. But they don't know the history of the place Mm. where they're staying. And like to me, that's a little problematic. But now everybody here knows. So you should go to Guatemala. And you should read about the Guatemalan genocide. Yes. And not only that, read about the Maya in a way that empowers them. And it's not just, you know, a crap action movie (laughs) about the end of the world and that, you know... Yes. These Um, cultures aren't, like, in any form archaic or past. And if they are, that's very purposeful by Europeans and white people. And I I will say there's this weird narrative surrounding the Maya that somehow, like, I think the the great mystery of the Maya, where did they all go? They all disappeared. I'm like, no, no, they didn't. They're there. They're there right now. Their clothes are vibrant and 
Although Finger in the Wound does have a chapter about clothing and like the oh. weird, the weird socio-political stuff about wearing clothing yeah. um, for indigenous Maya people. But you know, they, they exist and they're vibrant and they felt they faced a lot of um, pain and suffering that deserves to be validated on an international scale. Yeah. But um, they certainly didn't like, I don't know, well, wondrously, you, didn't mysteriously disappear. In the... I think if you like spoke to most people in the UK and talked about the Maya yeah. and said, you know, that they're still They're around, still there, yeah. You know, I think people would be shocked. Yes. That was a very interesting story. Pretty heavy content. Yeah, and we're yes. going to keep on with that heavy content. So we, I think we like talked earlier about Zoroastrian burial, which is how we met. Yes. Those many nights ago. Many moons. Many moons. Very romantic. Um, <laughs> but we just, you know, I just think a lot of this reminds me at the time I worked in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know anything about cremains and digging bodies up to identify them. But kind of like this cultural and historical and social aspect, I feel like I could talk about a little bit and what does the anthropologist, what can the anthropologist know? I'm in no way like going to say that this is a comprehensive, well-rounded account of Cam- Khmer, so Cambodian culture is called Khmer culture, the Khmer people. I'm not going to try and, you know, pretend this is a deep insight because I was there working for, I was doing um, like logistics and security for one of those organisations that sends people off on... Were you a bouncer in Cambodia? I was not a bouncer in Cambodia. You <laughs> that, know, sounds like... Like, that sounds like what a bouncer says when you ask them like on a Tinder date. What, so what do you I, do? I work in security. And logistics. No, no, no. no. <laughs> it was... It's not that sexy. Okay. I wish it was. In fact, let's just like edit this. I'm not... It wasn't even that sexy. I was looking after, you know, when kids go on volunteerism packages holiday. Oh my. I was coordinating those uh-huh. and making sure they didn't get themselves in bother. How difficult was that? Extremely difficult. Yes. So, and especially, yeah, right. So yeah, this wasn't like a, I didn't go like looking for this. <laughs> and even if I did, you know, a white guy in Cambodia trying to like get insider knowledge, if there's even such a thing. On the Cambodian genocide, you know, this is this is a really long disclaimer. I'm just trying to say. It. How about you just jump right in? Should I just go right in? Go, okay, yeah. everyone. So everyone, like, whenever I begin a sentence, just be like, I'm Matt, not. Yeah, Matt, 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 Matt. Matt. <laughs> just like yeah, like just that, that's my disclaimer. Let's go. Okay, so yeah, worked in Cambodia, um, and something I think that. People will not realise until they get there is the scale and extent of the Cambodian genocide. And a lot of people in the UK don't know about this. Doesn't I think it's, I think more Americans would know about it because I think there are more Cambodian immigrants. Cambodia had a big genocide in 1975 until 1979. Um, what I'll do is I'll tell you kind of like what went down. And then I'll say what I kind of like noticed culturally and socially in Cambodia. So Cambodia was colonised by the French for a very long time. That's my academic rigour there. Okay, so Cambodia became independent. It was very, it was known as the Pearl of Southeast Asia. It had a lot of French architecture. It was a cultural hub. There was a lot of rock and roll going on there. Loads of jazz, which is huge in that region still. Yeah, there was still a lot of post-colonial poverty and inequality. 
So when the French left, the Cambodian government, which was a monarchy at the time, which I believe filtered down into some form of democracy, but there's still a lot of, you know, poverty going on, especially in the rural regions towards the border of Vietnam and Laos. Um, loads of, as I said, inequality. And what happens is you have the Vietnam War kicking off and, you know, that's, I think most people know about the Vietnamese War. But what happened is America, for some reason, decided to stop bombing eastern Cambodia, which was a neutral country. So you have a destabilisation. And the reason they stopped bombing them was they said that, you know, this border, Viet Cong were infiltrating the border, right? And that's why they stopped bombing Cambodia. And it allowed a group called the Khmer Rouge, which was an Argarian communist movement, to really take power and they very quickly, through tapping into the fury of the Khmer people over foreign power like the United States and France subordinating them and enslaving them, very quickly got enough supporters. It was able to take over the country. This is 1975. The idea was Cambodia, which then was called, which was going to be now called Kampuchea, was a completely revolutionary country that was going to be completely devoid of Western tropes. The issue is that the way they defined this and the solution to this were extreme. So doctors, teachers, the intelligentsia, students, people who spoke a second language, Muslims, monks, because Cambodia had a very substantial Muslim minority. Monks, lay people, nuns, Buddhist nuns, uh, people who wore glasses, and then all their families as well were deemed... I don't know the term of these, but they were deemed enemies of this new Cambodian country. They took the Algarians, this is, you know, based on farming, to a whole new extreme, and nobody lived in the Cambodian capital cities between 1975 and 1979. Everyone left. They forced everyone to leave. Everyone had to then start to live on farms, and you couldn't even refer to your families. It's like mom, dad, auntie, uncle... Because that was bourgeoisie, so you had to call family, maybe you had to call them <coughs> uncle and aunt. But you couldn't call your parents, you know, your parents. Mm. And what began to happen were these big killing fields where people were exterminated. They were usually tortured in a museum called Twelve Sleng. I say museum, it was a high school and it became a torture camp. And there's something crazy, like 99.9% people died there. That went there. I think there was only like 27 survivors. And there are still scratch marks on the walls if you go today from where people were tortured. Really, like, really horrible stuff. Okay, so I'm going to kind of like fast forward and I'm going to like tell you what it's like to go to the killing fields now. So you go, it's like half an hour side of Phnom Penh, which is the capital. And it's called Cheong Ek, which is where they took most of these people. And you go in and there's a big pagoda, which is like a monument. And you walk around, and what happened is these people that were taken, men, women, children, the families of all these dissenters, they were taken to something called like the dark and gloomy prison. From there, they were blindfolded and taken out to big pits. And the Khmer Rouge, they were told that bullets were too valuable, and so to kill enemies of the state, you had to use a, you know, a hoe. Yeah. One of those, or a shovel. Yeah, so you'd hit somebody over the head with that. In Cambodia, the bamboo plant, the leaves of it are very serrated. Mm. So they would sharpen that and then saw at people's necks to make sure they were dead and then pour loads of acid on top of the bodies. And 
this wasn't just people around three million people died. A lot of them, about half were in killing fields, half were starvation and seas. Cambodia had a population of about six million, yeah, seven million. So it was a huge, and this is why the Khmer Rouge collapsed because too many people died. Mm. And a very interesting thing that they do when you visit the Chong Ek killing fields is they will make you wear. It's like an audio guide, and what they do is they like tell you to close your eyes. And then they're like, what you would have heard if you were going to be executed was the sound of a revolutionary song. So this song starts playing, like, you know, one of those communist mm-hmm. propaganda songs. And there would also have been an electric generator. And that was to cut... The reason they played this song and they had this generator running all the time was so that you didn't hear, like, the moans of people mm. in the pit. And in this one killing field, there's something like 8,000 people buried there. And there are big dips in the ground from where... Yeah. You know, the ground compresses when people die. And there are signs being like, please don't walk through the mass graves. And if you see bones, tell the yeah. guards, not the guards, the keepers and the monks. Um, Because in Khmer culture, you don't exhume bodies. You wait until the body has been washed up by the rain. So you'll find little stations throughout the killing fields where there are just piles of bones being washed up. And you can see on the ground there's teeth jawbones there's still clothes there i don't think i've been to a place that's quite like that i think it's really it really takes your it blows your mind as well and the bar you know the barbarity of the, what when people, people die and also like what just people can do to other people yeah absolutely and whether in the name of politics or in the name of religion you know for example this wasn't a very strictly atheist regime and there was something called the killing tree which is, so you go up to it and you're like, this tree looks really weird. There's sorts of things hanging off it and it's bracelets. Because in Cambodia, in the Theravada Buddhism that you get there, you will get like bracelets, a nun will put on a bracelet around your wrist and that's good health, good luck. People will often take these off, which is meant to be very bad luck, and put them on the graves of where people have died. So this tree called the killing tree is where they used to execute children so we're talking like babies and toddlers by hitting the heads off the tree. And so on this tree now you have loads of these bracelets hanging off. And just the the horror of this all is really, you know, people are really taken about as they should be, really. Yeah. It's quite I think it was very difficult. I I'm not gonna, you know, sit here and say that I at the time felt like crying or I, d- I don't know if I could pinpoint an emotion of sadness because it was so horrifying that it's truly ineffable. And I think this is something, you know. I I had a similar experience. Um, this is really what my thesis mm. now revolves around in Guatemala, um, is that I went to a cemetery in, in Guatemala City that's specifically for the bodies of the unidentified mm. that are killed contem- in contemporary violence. And I went with a contact whose father had been missing. And mm-hmm. so she went to see if maybe she could find some information, maybe find his body, find where mm-hmm. he was buried. Of course, it's impossible because the cemetery is not maintained. As you say, you know, if there's a burial, the there will be like a, a dip, right, in the earth. Mm-hmm. Room. So if it's not maintained. And, yeah. you know, in this, this cemetery is called the Tres Equis Cemetery, so XXX. Um, oh. I thought that, it was because they just put those on the gravestones. Yeah. Um, you know, XXX instead of a name. 
but it, it's not. There are no gravestones. It's three crosses at the entrance of the cemetery. There are these just fields of these dips in the earth, yeah. just lo- lo- hundreds and hundreds of rows, mm. and they're all accumulating garbage. They're just full of trash. God. And just walking down the road, I saw human bones coming up from the pathway. Yeah. So you know that there are burials. There are people who are not in the graves. So as as many as you see graves for, there oh, are people. there are more people. So yeah. it would be impossible. This is all my original data, by the way. So <laughs> we will take that as gems of wisdom. And, so, and I think, and that is something I do remember: is you go in and you're like sadistically like looking for bones because you're like, this is a killing field. What evidence is there? And then I think it slowly dawns on you that you try and not step on bones. Or clothing, and there comes a point at Chongek where it just becomes impossible. It's yeah. everywhere, and that really is something I think that is mm-hmm. I, truly it changes your life. I read some work by some, of a forensic anthropologist who was working in Cambodia, and mm. she was saying that there isn't a big forensic anthropological initiative there, for the reason we don't exhume bodies, but then also very little importance in terms of spirituality or religiosity yes. is given to the bones. Because there is this sense that there's reincarnation or life after death. And so the yeah. the physical body doesn't hold as much value as somebody... The majority of people in um, in Guatemala are Catholic so in general. Yeah. And so there's a huge amount of importance. Even like indigenous groups of, of Maya, they still have this tremendous desire to have the bodies back. Whereas in Cambodia, this forensic anthropologist mm. sort of noted that there was a very different approach to how important it was to have the bodies of your relatives back. It's, I think it's, I think that's, you know, absolutely nail on the head, that idea of re, rebirth in Buddhism. And I like to call it rebirth and not necessarily reincarnation because right. it's not guaranteed that you'll become <laughs> a body again. Um, the, I mean, the rituals that surround death, I don't know very well, but there was a girl that lived around the corner from our office that was hit by a truck and she died. And for days and days, I think it was about six days, there was chanting going on. And that was part of the death ceremony. It had to be continuously going all over the body. I can't, and I just can't pretend that I know much about mm-hmm. the death practices. That's um, what you're here for. I'm sorry. Not, I'm sorry, I'll leave. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but it's very interesting because what you're saying about Guatemala and the sense of injustice in Cambodia the Khmer Rouge, which were this group, the leading figures of the Khmer Rouge are the ones who are sought to be brought to justice. Pol Pot, who led the Khmer Rouge, died before he could be brought to justice, actually. And Cambodians are very, I sit and against this sweeping statement, but there is great anger towards these individuals, the Khmer mm-hmm. Rouge. Now, the people that did the actual killing, not so much. Mm-hmm. Not so much, I think. Legally, certainly not. I don't know if there was anything like an official pardon, but the idea in Cambodia is that you were either killing or you were being killed. So it really wasn't... It was such a huge, horrendous tragedy that you could have escaped. So I met someone that was in the Khmer Rouge and lost both their arms because mm-hmm. they tried to escape and a mind blew off their arms. And a lot of them have now become Buddhist monks mm-hmm. to re repay bad karma to gain merit for the country because karma what i see is you know what goes around comes around it's a lot more complex it's a way more complex that's like a 
bastardized white version of karma. But real karma is a lot more... So if I did something bad, the bad mm. consequence wouldn't necessarily happen to me, it could happen to yeah. you. And that's kind of the idea, cosmic balance. And so there's, yeah, so the way culturally that they'll deal with death is mm-hmm. very different. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, it's, thank you. It's really never easy. Maybe next time, uh, but next time, next time, and the time after that, um, we can definitely talk about the Indian Ocean Tsunami. Oh. So my supervisor did oh. research into that yeah. and the identification efforts there in Thailand. Yes. And then Myanmar slash Burma has some really interesting stories in terms of forensic anthropology. In and, current state. Well, I know not so much what they did with death, but I know how they accounted for the tsunami in Sri Lanka, mm. which was some some Buddhist theologians argue that it was because of the bad karma brought on to the people by the actions of the state in the Sri Lankan civil war. How Lots to unpack Lots there. Lots to... Tune yes. in next week. Tune in next week. And, and the week after talk. that. <laughs> the week it's after not even that. a week. It's going to be like a month. Oh, God. Knowing us. Yeah. It's going to be a new year. Happy New Happy Year, new everyone. Happy New Year. <laughs> Yay. Happy Christmas. It's a great dinner. Hi, ma'am. Hi, great, dad. Great dinner listening. No, don't. No, it. don't. I wouldn't need... When do you think this is a good time to listen to this podcast? There Maybe is no good time to listen to this know. podcast. In the morning, it would be a bit sad. At night, it's going to be a bit sad, so... 2pm so when it gets to set your alarms for 2pm and, and turn on the remains of the day with sarah and matt hello hello i'm sarah rosen i'm matt richardson <laughs> i don't know why <laughs> and we're the almost doctors of death yes tune in at some point Next in the future <laughs> <laughs> i don't know where to put matt shaheen richardson because that's like my hashtag academic stage name and technically, my hashtag academic stage name is Sarah Meyer Rosen. Should we do that again? Yes. <laughs> I'm Sarah Meyer Rosen. I'm actually Richardson. And we're the Almost Doctors of Death. Almost. Join us next time. <laughs> is that really negative? <laughs> Almost. It's, I don't know. I've just, no, know. I love it. I love it. Join us next time as we discuss death more. Thank you for that, Sarah. That was a real good way to round off our professional podcast. Mm. Professional? Oh, gosh. This has been Remains of the Day. We love the way you die. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, Lord.